Solomon Brothers for my intro music that is still making me happy. Uh, also making me happy is that this is the first time the podcast is being recorded outside of the land of Israel. Obviously, I'm a true Zionist, but also I love me and my best friends, and I am in Silver Spring sitting next to Daphne Lazar Price, who I think, how long have we been friends? Oh, God, since since we were really very small children. I want to say sixth grade. That's what we said, right? You transferred into our school. I transferred in, in sixth grade, but really we did like B'nai Akiva stuff in fourth and fifth grade. We sure did. We, we sure, sure did. did. Yep. So now without saying how old we are, I'll just say you're literally the oldest person I know. <laughs> Stephanie is one of my, truly one of my oldest friends, and I always come back to, there is something about old friends that are just absolutely the best. And we've actually, meaning, personally, we've crossed paths our whole lives, basically. Mm -hmm. Intentionally. Intentionally crossing paths. And professionally, we sort of zig and zag in, like, similar worlds until, like, bakery life took me in a whole different place. I was going to say that we kind of, you know, ran in, like, parallel lines in Jewish communal life, except for when we intentionally intersected when we were working on challah crumbs. Right. So, meaning before all the, everything in my life seems to surround carbs. That's the truth. So before there was a bakery full of bread, I had that cute little wonderful website called challahcrumbs.com, which is still there. Still there. Um, But I made you, I mean, I made basically everybody that I could do stuff for me for free. Yes. You should just know also that whenever I need a recipe, I still look it up there. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple of recipes that are my go-tos that I go there also. Um, Yeah. So I don't mean, we started that. When did I start that? That was seven Kids were little. My kids, kids were little. Were little. I want to say it was little. 2010 or 2011. Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. Meaning the whole point of holocrums at the time was we all had these, we actually talked about this yesterday, mm-hmm. this feeling of isolation that you have when you have little, little kids at home. Our kids are getting bigger, both of ours. Yes, but at the time they were little and it was hard to get out and, you know, on this side of the world where it's wintertime and, like, nobody wants to bundle up their kids and leave the house and so you're just kind of stuck at home. So for me, I would be, like, at home all, like at home until I went to work and then until I came home and not a lot in between. Right. And also I think that at the time that was that was on trend, meaning you were connecting with people by blogging, by having websites, and now social media has shifted drastically. Before we even say that, let's just say what you do right now. Oh, hi. Um, so uh, for the last almost exactly six months, I have been the executive director of JOFA, which is the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. It's an organization that's been in existence as an organization since 1998, um, but it came about because um, a bunch of visionary women feminist rock star leaders um, uh, were um, talking about it around a dining room table, um, the dining room table of Blue Greenberg, um, and they they visioned they, they envisioned a conference that they put together, and without really knowing what to expect, because it was before the age of the internet and email and all of that, if you can picture a time, um, over a thousand people showed up to this conference. So I think that also meaning. Uh, I always feel that so much happens around dining room tables. I Meaning, I think that's probably a mantra that David and I live by. Mm-hmm. The house is always full, even that we're here for the weekend mm-hmm. and your table is about to be also, full. Also, we are right now sitting at my dining room you, table. We are literally <laughs> sitting on your, at your dining room table. And tonight we'll have friends of mine from forever go in tomorrow, more friends. There's something that's very powerful about the dining room table. And I would say in the spirit of one million years of friendship, because again, you're the oldest person I know. But your family and my family were both families that sat around that dining room table. Yeah, it's true. When my parents actually redid their house, um, they they redid like one one room and then they pushed out another room. And um, 
in my mind, we were always going to hang out in this like fancy den. At the time, it was like bottle green leather couches. I totally remember. That was it. totally like the hottest thing at the time. Um, and in the end, we just we just lived around the kitchen table because everything was around like food. Love was uh, was was kind of expressed through food, and we all loved food, and so it was a lovely circle that we all lived around. But we really lived around the kitchen table, um, and everything was around um, food and family. Look, and... your mom's Yichonali Vracha. Mm-hmm. I really remember these decadent cakes that she would make. Mm-hmm. She was scary. You didn't really want to eat it until she told you you could <laughs> eat it because it always felt like it would be for someone else. But. Um, um, she, yes, meaning that was her thing. I remember like these very beautiful. Yes. So she would sit and just like picture in her head, oh, I want to make a cake that has multi layers and many different kinds of frostings and, and, and then I will just bring it to somebody's house um, and, and, and watch everybody else enjoy. Um, yeah. I mean, also before the age of internet. So she was figuring it out on her own. And I also felt that way. My parents' house also had the vibe of oh everybody can come here and I think definitely my house oh my gosh yes we also we used to okay so here's another like now really dating ourselves Devorah and I used to like plan our Sundays around the series 21 Jump Street oh my gosh (laughs) it's true yeah first of all we're like a thousand years old now and also we just outed ourselves that we had terrible taste in TV but I will say it was Johnny Depp in our defense it was before Johnny Depp was crazy like meaning at the start of his career like you know he was just Johnny Depp now he was also on the cover of like every teen magazine so you were allowed teen magazines i most certainly was not allowed those magazines fair mom dad good job (laughs) good job but okay so meaning joe was sort of founded around this idea of people wondering what was out there beyond the kitchen table yes really that's what you're looking at um and i think maybe i I guess a little bit holocrums was also founded on this idea of if you feel isolated, what can you do at that kitchen table? Meaning if it's activities for your kids or if it was coloring pages or if it was recipes, like there was this giving almost like the sacredness, the sacred space to your, to your own home. And I think that was empowering at the time. I think the other thing that was empowering was that it was kind of the first time that for a lot of us that we had our own platform to be able to talk and do and express ourselves in a way that we were not beholden to a boss or to a family. It's true. So I I guess for both of us, Mm -hmm. and I would actually say for most of our immediate circle of friends in high school, none of us ever shut up. Meaning we were really, (laughs) we we were the people who were the loudest. We were the loudest. We were also known as the underachievers. I think we were known as the underachievers only to ourselves. Only to ourselves. It's true. And here's the reason why we didn't take calculus. Yes. Except for Cindy Hashigetel Cross, um, who took, (laughs) she took calculus, but five of us didn't take calculus. And the five of us had like a spare period before lunch and then lunch and then after lunch in our senior year of high school. And we took advantage of that in ways that I think are embarrassing now, but it was mostly going to the JCC. Well, I had a car. You had a car. Tovid had a car. Pammy had a car. I had a station wagon. We all fit. Yes, we all fit into my station wagon. But yes, Tovid had a car. Pammy had her K car. And we would just take turns. We would actually go to Pammy's house a lot also and watch Days of Our Lives and empty her food. I remember. Sorry, Judy. Sorry, sorry, Mrs. I want to call her Judy. (laughs) Sorry, Mrs. Scheininger. Um, yes, I remember, I remember going to Tovit's also cartoons. I remember we watched like Gem. Oh, Gem. 
Look, look, we all have a past, everybody, and I think it's important to acknowledge it and be so proud of it and see how far we've come. For a bunch of underachievers, we've done pretty well for ourselves. I think everybody's in these pretty creative, dynamic, exciting fields, most notably Yona Zimmerman, who's bridging the gap of marijuana technology and marijuana farmers in Canada. Did you know that? Um, so I had been gleaning some of that, no pun intended. Um, uh, through her social media presence. Um, but, um, that is very cool. And it is, I think, um, I, I think that there's, that there's a lot to be tapped into there. I hope she makes millions. I'm uh, going to tell I you. I hope so too. Um, yes. So listen, I hope we both make millions also, but, um, but the reality is meaning we sell one loaf of bread at a time, um, and you're in public service. So we might need to take side yeah. jobs to get there. Um, I was going to say, right. So my side job is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law School. And that that's not also, making you. Nope, that is, ba- that is barely covering my Starbucks run for that semester. I know. That's not. Yeah, we're not doing well. Maybe that's the underachiever part No, no, part we are doing very well. <laughs> we are very happy. Fulfilled. We are thr- fulfilled. Yes, we are fulfilled. Right? Me who ha sheer. That's true. Right? Um, I would say also, like, if we would go back to any of our high school teachers and they would be asked about the two of us, I don't think they would have ever anticipated this. I'm trying to think. Definitely not Baker's wife for you. No, yeah, no, no. No. I remember um, the end of my did you take economics? I with did. Heidi Schwartz. With Heidi Schwartz. So from Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Um so the end of the Nova Scotia. Newfoundland, mm-hmm. Nova Scotia. Potato, potato. Uh, I remember at the end of the second semester she said to me, Now listen, Devorah, you're gonna go to college. Don't take any tests that are multiple choice. Only write things. Because she just knew that I was like a, a BSer. And so once you give me pen and paper, and that was the beginning of my illustrious career of just putting everything down on paper. But if it's like a right or wrong answer, I'd probably get it wrong. So she gave me no advice. I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to make of it either. But it's true. Okay, I would also say that one of the nice things that we have maybe in common is sort of this idea that we're advancing bigger causes. Like things that, meaning in the Orthodox feminist world, there are miles to go. Yes. Do you feel that way? Yes. So I feel like um, every every victory, even if it's a teeny tiny victory, is leaps and bounds ahead. Um, and um, and I also recognize that the work I do is clearly not for me, is for a much broader part of the Orthodox Jewish community um, of women who are feeling disenfranchised. And not just women, it's really families, it's, it's you know... When, when half a population is feeling disenfranchised, it's really the whole community that's suffering for it. So um, yeah, They always say, you know, you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. Yes, it's true. Or as I tell my child, I can only go as fast as the slowest car in front of me. That's nice. Yes. That's <laughs> um, you're, you have two daughters. What Do they react to Jofa? Do they understand what's going on? Or they're just eye-rolling? So this is the first time that they actually understand the work that I do. In, sure. In all of my past jobs, they just told everybody that I was a spy because mm. they just could not understand. And um, some of the access that I had um, in in the DC area, um, and so they now really, for the first time, really understand the work that I do. I would say that one of my daughters is more deeply engaged in in some of the work and priorities of Jofa, and the other one will come along. Um, but the nice thing is that she will have options either way, whether she chooses to exercise. So them I or find not. that for for us, I found like as we were growing up, as we were coming up in the world, it was a very vocal and loud struggle, and you needed to be loud about it and I find that my daughter it's a post-feminist era meaning the choices seem obvious you want to learn Gemara great you don't want to learn Gemara fine you want to go to the army great you don't want to go to the army fine it seems to be like things that we are even still fighting hand tooth and nail for meaning she feels like 
we sort of paved the way for that. Yeah, so we definitely paved the way. I also think that I grew in a somewhat different environment. I grew up in a in a Chabad environment. Interesting models for me was that Neshei Chabad, the women of Chabad, have a very strong leadership model. So it's not grounded in Gemara studies or in um, leaning from the Torah, but there's certainly a very strong women's tefillah element. There's certainly a strong learning element, um, and there's certainly a strong leadership model, even if it's just for other women. And I don't want to minimize that because there's certainly something very powerful about being in all women's spaces. Um, and uh, there was kind of an almost underground, though it's not underground anymore. When I was growing up, again, there was no social media, no internet, no, you know, nothing. Um, you basically knew the community that, that, that you were in. But as, as I got to know um, other communities and as social media kind of amplified what was going on in the world, it became clear that women were really leading the way for other women in those communities. And on a more subtle level, meaning it wasn't as overt. It was it was overt for the women in those communities, right? So there was no such thing as a woman making hamotzi, for example, at the Shabbos table, but there were certainly women who were teaching classes and who were, um, and who were uh, taking the lead in other kind of public matters. And certainly if you look around now at the, at the Shlichos model, the Chabad Rebetzin has as much public influence as the Chabad rabbi. That's wild. I never thought about it that way. I remember thinking you were Chabad, and that was like almost a separate religion from from like the mainstream of Toronto at that time. Oh, it certainly felt that way, not just in the mainstream of Toronto, but amongst my friends where, you know, there's a question of like, we didn't hold by the Eruv in, in, in all parts of Toronto, where we kept Chalavis role, where none of my other oh, friends did. Oh my gosh, did. I forgot about yes, that. Yes, where, um, where the... Um, our dress code was far more strict than the rest of my <laughs> friends, let's just say. Um, and so, you know, that created a lot of tension. I wasn't allowed to talk to boys until... You failed. I you, failed, you failed miserably. Wild. Look, for 6th through 8th grade, when we were together, our elementary school was pretty Haredi, but still a different type of Haredi. Right, so it was definitely Haredi, um, and it was... Uh, I actually don't know that it was a different kind of Haredi, right? It was a different kind of Haredi because because we were in school in one environment, and when we went home, we were in a different environment. So the school that we went to lectured us that we were trading away a Yerushalayim because our sleeves were too short, because we wore short Bob, socks, bobby, bobby socks, socks, as bobby we socks, called them. Grape popsicles. Yep. They, there was a lot of damnation to hell. There was a lot of damnation to hell. We were going to hell. And there was also a lot of, or very little patience to explain things like questions that we asked. I remember we had one teacher, we would ask her a question and she would just say, it's a fact. Just like George Washington was the first oh, president of the United States, yeah, it's a that. fact. So I feel like our education was pretty schwach. But I, but, I, yeah, but I think that it raised us rebellious. And I mean, I was a very, very good kid. You were a very good kid. I was kid. a very good kid. You were a very good um, kid. But I still think that when we came up in that world, we were being raised as rebellious because we were already going against the grain because we were more B'nai Akiva or we were more modern. And so that sort of gave us in a, in, in a, almost in a little bit of a subversive way, the confidence to sort of question. Yeah, absolutely. But not just that, we also had our parents backing in a lot of way because the school that we went to was really a feeder school for Beis Yaakov. Yes. Or that was their hope and intention. Which was fine. Meaning, I, 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 it doesn't mean to speak badly about the school. That was definitely their agenda. Totally they made fine. no secrets about that. They that made was no their secrets. Agenda. And for the, for I think our class, was the first time that the majority of the class was not going to matriculate into Beis Yaakov. And there was some tension there. And so we felt rebellious in the school, but we also had our parents backing us because our parents were not going to send us to Beis Yaakov. So it was, it was, a, it was a rebellion within the system, but with the confidence that 
of, of support from home. But looking back, I think that it sort of almost helped us. I think that it empowered us in a very nice way. I think that we pushed the envelope straight through high school. I don't think that we were easy in any stretch of the imagination. I <laughs> we think were that not we were... easy. I want to say we were not easy, but we were not thugs. No. Oh, no. We were lovely. We were lovely, right? Like, our causing trouble <laughs> was... Wait, wait. I remember I this. Know what you're we say. cut class one time, and we went down to the basement, which was at the time called the rat room or the locker room oh, where we yeah. were, and, and there was a fire alarm switch that was broken, and one of our friends was like, oh, look, nothing in this school works, and uh, flipped the switch up and triggered that. the alarm. So the whole school exits the building. And then we, because we were so good, actually went and said what happened and apologized for triggering the alarm. We were nice kids. We were nice kids. But also, meaning, let me just say something else. We, we were good kids. We were pushing a little bit of the system. But then you went on professionally from the start, meaning I always joke that, like, so my undergrad is in psychology and grad school was in social work and now I run a bakery. And it feels like that's a lot of dollars <laughs> that went to places. Um, although definitely reflecting back, social work definitely helps run a large staff, which specifically my staff are a lot of teenagers or kids in their early 20s going through all sorts of wonderful crises. So meaning I definitely think it's the place, but you actually grew up straight into, didn't you go, right. was so, Jewish studies so I the first, start. So when I graduated, I did not do a gap year. I did not do a Shana Aleph year, which was, um, uh, you know, a point of contention in my life. Um, but uh, maybe in a way to compensate, or maybe it was really the only thing that I was really comfortable studying. I went to York University and I declared my, I actually first was going to be a psych major. And after and, uh, my, like every like Jewish everybody kid else, also it's a campus of 40,000 students. So everybody's like, that ah, will be psych majors psych major. and then we'll figure it out. And it was also the first time that I learned that you can actually change your mind. Right at the time, York University was forty thousand students. I've, I think it's much bigger now because they amalgamated all the campuses, um, and and you were really just a number, and so you could change your major twenty two times as long as you I had did. the requirements. So I started as a psych major and took intro to psych and hated every second of it. And then I thought, you know what? Let me take a Jewish history class. I remember. And then I was like, oh, this is actually I actually am both learning and adding things to the class because there are things that I there's a knowledge base that I have. Um, and so I switched my major to be religion. There was no official Jewish studies at York at the time. There might be now. Um, but my focus was clearly on Jewish studies. And so I took all of the Jewish studies classes that there were. I even had independent studies classes that, that I came up with professors um, Marty with Marty Lakshan. So Marty Lakshan and I um, and two other students, we sat down and we, and we drew out a syllabus and we studied women in halacha. Um, and we did it not under the humanities or religion side. We did it under the Hebrew language side. So we actually studied text at York University. We Good studied, thing. yeah, we we used Ellenson as our base, Hatsnei um, Lechet, and we and and we studied for a semester though. It was actually really great. When I was done with that, I went to Concordia University where I did a master's in Jewish in history. Yep, in Montreal, uh, with uh, Professor Norma Joseph, who and that was already focused on women's studies. Um, so she is a preeminent feminist who crafted laws related to Gittin in Canada. Go. And I had the privilege of studying with her then, and then we actually lost track of each other for some number of years. And when I took over Jofa uh, more recently, we reconnected, and it's been quite lovely to have her back in my life. But the truth is, my master's thesis at the time was not on anything Jewish feminist halacha related. It was on the Chabad movement after the death of the Rebbe. Oh, I remember that. It was. And so I remember that. Um, it was also kind of, it was, it was a little bit, um, 
that was rebellious for you also it because was also you were taking the Chabad movement on, and that was that was what you grew up in. Yes. So I in in the one on one conversations that I had with different rabbis and different leaders in uh, in the communities that I was visiting. So I Concordia was in Montreal. I would go back home to Toronto. I would go to Crown Heights, and I would do like a lot of one on one interviews. And people felt very like their back up against the wall. Like, what was I asking? What was I going to do with the information? Who, where was it going to publish? And the truth is, it just sits in a bound volume in my basement. So <laughs> if anybody wants to read it, you know where it is now. It's in Daphne's basement. In my basement. You can break into my house. It's downstairs. Look, Just don't Jofa take anything. Is, so really your role in Jofa now is kind of this connector, or I don't know, this like all paths have sort of led here to the point where I think you are a little bit crafting the narrative of what happens next in the Jewish Orthodox world. Uh, so it's interesting. So in the first few months of my job, and again, I've only been here for six months, I really spent a lot of time listening to people, listening to um, the work that they've been doing, the different models of uh, of growth, the different uh, institutional leaders. So uh, whether it's Yeshivat Maharat or Nishmat and their Yuatzot program or the GPATS program at Stern College, um, I spent a lot of time listening. I spent a lot of time with the, um, with the founders of the movement, and I spent a lot of time talking with people who have been involved at various points in their lives. Um, you know, people had to step aside because they had young children and just didn't have time to really do the work. Um, and so, and so I have, I have, as, as a researcher, I have a pretty broad, uh, picture and broad sense of, of where the organization has been. So I would say one thing that David and I found when we started the business is, um, we needed a tremendous amount of humility. Like that, when you talk about spending the first few months just listening, like we totally came from a different world. And so we needed to spend, and we continue to spend so much time listening to people who have been where we've been or have done what we've done or who understand that world. Because I know with a hundred percent certainty, had we walked in with this like Bishvilini Raha Olam sort of attitude, right. we would have fallen flat on our faces. And it was only once we have that base and we still build on that base that we can move forward at all. Right. So um, in some ways, yes, but because all my life I've been an Orthodox woman and have had questions and concerns and and opportunities at various points in my life. Um, the synagogue that I belong to now um, offers any number of um, engagement in synagogue life. So there is women's Megillah, there's women's Tefillah, there's, there's women's Hakafa, women teach, women um, deliver divrei Torah from the pulpit at the end of shul. And so um, there are a lot of there are a lot of opportunities and growth. Uh, and But I also recognize that not every shul is like that and not every community is like that and not every woman wants that either, right? So it really is, um, like you said, a little, a little bit of humility and the recognition that every synagogue wants to address the needs of its congregation the best way that it can. That, that it can. So in our community, there are entry points in any number of ways. Um, the next synagogue um, over maybe less so. The Chabad model obviously offers its, its own other model. Um, and there's a recognition that there are multiple paths to achieve kind of orthodox zen. Um, and having said that, there are also many, many, many barriers and obstacles, both institutional, um, things that are systemic, um, unconscious biases, uh, you know, biases that come from, you know, we talk about our education and and kind of the lacking moments of it. And I think about 
what my male counterparts, um, what their experience was. That's true. Although, I, I mean, look, we grew up in single-sex education, and that to me was fabulous, meaning there are certain elements of it that I think I wouldn't trade for the world. I think maybe the, the topics that we were teaching might have been lacking, but I think that in our own way, I think that we felt very empowered and very comfortable. Uh, and I think that that maybe a little bit gave us some confidence to sort of move. Look, it's been so long, you know, but I think that we've both moved to places that are truly unexpected. Um, certainly the old us in our uh, underachiever ways, but um, but we moved to really exciting places. Um, I guess the, the question that I often ask is, do you have a work-life balance? I, I have zero work-life balance. So I, I try to have work-life balance. Really, I am most grateful for Shabbos when I am completely disconnected from my devices and the outside world, and I'm able to focus my attention on the people around me, again, back to the dining room table. Um, but, you know, many times the conversations refer back to what are you working on? What are your priorities for the my day? My kids, who I really do love most of the time, they have devised a bingo board because they think that David and I revisit the same conversations at every Shabbat meal. So if they hear me talk about politics, they like give a little check. Oh, she hit politics. If they hear David talk about sourdough, they give a little check. They're adorable, but also not adorable. Um, yes, the disconnect on Shabbat is wonderful. I will say that in a bread baker's world, there's always that minute on Friday night after David says Hamotzi that I sort of do a Hail Mary and pray that the challah is good because I know that it's in thousands of homes. And so I like, I like literally have this moment of tension until I take it by. I'm like, oh, thank God. Has it ever not been good? Yeah. What do you, oh my God. What do you mean? Of course it's not been good. Meaning that's the humility that comes with creating something day after day after day that there's always room for failure it's not like oh you perfected it it's always going to be amazing in the world of sourdough like oh there's more humidity that we didn't take into account so all the whole wheat sourdough breads have fallen and then that affects what how we wholesale the next day yes every day when you create something new there is room for fabulous things and there's room for failure oh oh my gosh yes i could talk about it forever i think it's such a um such a fabulous life lesson. I think in general for my kids, even though I think some of them get it, maybe not the younger ones, but for my kids to understand, oh, there are people who follow their creative process and there are people who follow their dreams and yeah, hopefully it all works out and it's great and everything is great, but you know, people can fail. And I think that that message sits on the bubble all the time. And so my kids have this appreciation and maybe a light fear, but this appreciation <laughs> of like, oh, they've tried something new. And I think that they are proud of us, which I, I don't think you can ask for anything better than that. And I would assume your girls also have that feeling. Yes. So um, apart from the fact that they were mystified for many years, what I did for work, uh, I certainly think that there is a sense of pride. I, you know, I hear them talk about it with other people or my friends come and report back to me the things that they've said to them. And, you know, it's, it's sweet and it's gratifying to know that that they are proud of the work that I do. It's great. Now listen, it is kind of close to Shabbat and we haven't set your <laughs> table yet. And I know that we're filling the table with people. So we're going to go. First of all, I love you. Thank you for doing this. I love you too. Thank you for, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Yes. Thank you for hosting us. And the next time we do it, you'll be sitting at my bakery. Oh my gosh, that'll be so fun. Yes. All right. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks everybody. Bye.